Hi, I'm Yvonne Villarreal, and I cover television for the Los Angeles Times. I'm the host of Can't Stop Watching, your TV faves on their TV faves. On this new podcast, I talk to the TV stars who are keeping us entertained at home. I ask them about their characters, how their on-screen alter egos would handle their time in quarantine, and what TV shows they're currently hooked on. For our first episode, we can't stop watching David Harbour on Netflix's Stranger Things. You know him as Police Chief Jim Hopper. David tells us why Hopper reminds him of vintage Gene Hackman. He also reveals the name of the popular TV show he's finally getting around to watching. Usually we'd be having these conversations in person at our studio in El Segundo. Because of the coronavirus though, I'm conducting these interviews in my bedroom and our guests are in their respective homes. But the conversations don't change, guys. You've got to give them a listen. And with that, here's my conversation with David Harbour. David, thanks so much for taking time out of whatever day this is. (laughs) Don't even know the days anymore. I thank you for thanking me for taking time. My God, I, I have too much time. So it's nice to burn a little bit on a podcast. Well, here in California, most of us have been staying at home since around mid-March. And I'm curious, you know, what do your days in quarantine look like? Are you making any bread? Give me a snapshot. Like every other bourgeois on the planet, I am making bread. I'm embarrassed to say. You know, it's funny. Like I was in New York City alone in my apartment. I had just gotten back from the table read, really, of the show of the new season we had shot a couple days we shot a bunch in lithuania before and then we shot a couple days in atlanta i had a table read and i came back to new york and i was in my apartment in new york alone as all this stuff started to go down and my girlfriend is in london with her kids she kept telling me like come come here and i kept going like no i need to hunker down here in new york i need to be with my people and it's it'll pass quickly and like you know don't worry about it i'm just gonna wait it out i think i waited a, a couple days and then Cuomo started talking about these shelter-in-place orders, and I just got so scared that I wouldn't see them and the kids and all this stuff for however long. And so I, I did that thing that people talk about, where it's like I was watching his broadcast. I just picked up a bag, and I threw a couple clothes in it. I drove to the airport, and I just bought a ticket. I mean, I had a mask, and I had, like, you know, all this hand sanitizer. I tried to do it as safely as I could. But we got out here to a friend of hers, like, section of a house, and... So we're out here, you know, not our place. We don't have much stuff, but it's got a nice outdoor space, which is what we wanted for the kids. She has two kids, seven and eight. So these kids are crazy people. I'm not used to seven to eight-year-old children, but they beautiful, amazing creatures, but they also have more energy than I have ever seen a creature have. So basically, I spend my, my time getting climbed on by children, mainly. And then a lot of times I spend really bored, just like trying to read books, playing video games, not really understanding anything. I read a lot of the news sometimes, and that freaks me out. And then I stop reading the news entirely, and that freaks me out. I have days where it's so incredible. I get to spend this time with these people that I really care about. And then I have days where I'm like, I just want to go to a coffee shop and I want someone to come over and hug me. So it's sort of this weird mixture of I have great days and I have horrible days. Well, it's interesting because on Stranger Things, Hopper's used to fighting monsters 
and this is sort of the invisible monster, but it's just as scary, right? Like it's like fight or flight mode, like your adrenaline is there and you're like, what is going on outside? Yeah, exactly. The crazy thing about this is it's it's a mysterious illness that's very contagious that they don't know much about, right? So immediately, and I had done some traveling too, but then I would feel just a day where I was like, I, <coughs> I'd cough and I'd go like, I have it. And then three days go by and then I and then I had it again for some reason. But I did sort of have sort of have a breathing problem, but I sort of realized that it was just panic. Like I think one of the things that they don't tell you in during all this is your body responds to panic and tension. So anyway, I I have all this all these panic days, you know, myself. You talked about the books you're reading and the kids climbing over you. Have you caught up on any TV during this time? Like, what are you watching? You just hear so many people finally getting to the shows they never got to before. Exactly. I actually am. And this is embarrassing for anyone who's like a fan of my work, and especially for my former boss. Uh, I'm finally doing the West Wing, like the entire, what is it, seven or eight seasons of the West Wing. So I worked on a show called Newsroom with Aaron Sorkin. I told him I love the West Wing. And I've never seen the West Wing. So I'm watching the West Wing. It's good, too. It's good. (laughs) There's a lot of them. Wow. I'm so amazed by that about television. Like, you watch these old network shows, 22 episodes a year. We shoot eight or nine episodes a year, and it almost kills us. I mean, it almost destroys us. So I just can't imagine how hard these guys work. It's really, but it's really a great show. So I'm plowing through that. It's interesting you bring up Aaron Sorkin because a lot of people, as you know, news was filtering in, were kind of like, bring back the newsroom. What would Aaron Sorkin have to say about this moment in time and the coverage of it? Yeah, it would be, I mean, the problem with all these shows, like I think we started to get into it. Somebody said it about late night. It's like at a certain point, the reality is like funnier and more dramatic than anything you could write. I don't know how you'd spin this to make it more interesting than just turning on the news and watching these ridiculous press conferences or seeing these heroes and villains emerge. I don't know that you could actually, when things are too outrageous, it almost doesn't make for good drama. Well, I mean, this is a question we're asking everyone right now is like, how do you think your character, in your case, Hopper, who like has no patience for anything, would be handling this situation we're in right now? Would he be out there telling everyone to get their like asses inside or wearing masks? Like, how do you think he'd fare right now? Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of do, you know, at his core, he's a protector and he's also an anti-authoritarian. So I think that like he deals with Mayor Klein, like when he feels that there are people in power messing up and endangering good, innocent people, I think he kicks into gear. So yeah, I imagine he would be like telling people to protect themselves. And then he'd be going after the guys that are slow to respond as best as he could. But then again, it does make me think that there are all these upside down particles and like secret tunnels in the town of Ogden. And I don't see him holding any town meetings. You know, he's, he's a man of justice and he likes for things to be like something for him to fight. And I think the problem with this in particular is that it, you know, even if you fight the political people that you want to fight it, I mean, this virus is still floating around. And that's what makes me so sad. It's like there's just something that you can't fight. It just sits and spreads. And I think that's the scariest and kind of saddest thing about it. And I don't think Hopper deals well with 
scary, sad events that don't make sense to him. I mean, as evidenced by kind of the death of his daughter and how it just destroyed him. He doesn't know how to function when there's not a clear villain. And so I think it would be far more complex than like a demogorgon. (laughs) Has the cast of Stranger Things stayed in touch during this time? Have there been any Zoom hangouts or FaceTiming? I've texted with a couple people, but I FaceTime with the Duffer brothers just because I want to know more about the show, kind of when we'll go back to filming, like what they're working on, what, you know, we batter around ideas about what should be done because of schedules and how long this will be. And uh, I mean, nobody knows anything. And so we're all like, you know, first year sociology students, like spitballing. We're all just idiots. We've never dealt with this before, but we spitball ideas about the different seasons or what we do and how we, you know, and that's very comforting to just have those hypothetical discussions with them. But in terms of the other cast and crew, like I love them all and we all know we love each other, but it's funny, like my entire life, like even personal things, like sometimes I, I'll reach out to people, but in general, I have days where I don't reach out to anyone. And there's something about this time where it's like, I could be talking to everybody and there's just something in me that wants to like, just go inside and not talk to people. Something almost embarrassing about it or something. And I want to see you when I'm out of this. So I haven't really spoken to a lot of them at length. Yeah, I find that like I'm almost exhausted from the over-communicating that's happening. Like we're all sort of seeking some connection, but I find that my mind, I'm just like, this is a lot. And I'm trying to figure out the art of ending a phone conversation now because everyone knows you have all the time right now, but you're kind of like, I'm done talking. It's a weird situation. Yeah, I mean, and the the celebrity culture around Instagram lives is like, oh, so horrible now. I mean, like, we're all myself included, just like, and it's just because we need attention and nobody's giving us attention in this time. We're all focused on like important people, like people that do things in this world, like doctors and people that bag your groceries and people who make deliveries to you, you know, things like we're all just, you know, doing all these, all these communicating, but it doesn't have much value. So I do find like, I'll reach out in that way in a certain way. And I'll, I'll feel sort of a buyer's remorse about this communication. I'll feel like, just sit down, man, and just read a book and just use this time in a different way. I mean, people say like, aren't we lucky? that we have all this internet connectivity during this time. Wouldn't it be horrible if it was 20 years ago? And I think, I don't know, it might have been easier if we didn't have this connectivity because there's something about this little window into a larger world that almost makes it like more tantalous or whatever, you know, like reaching for the apple and it recedes from you. It's the same thing with this communication. We do have someone in front of us in terms of a FaceTime, but it's it's not a real person too. I hear that. Well, let's dive into your character a little more. I mean, when we were first introduced to Hopper in season one, he was this gruff and moody guy. And slowly but surely, particularly this season, as his relationship with his adopted daughter has taken center stage, we've seen his edges soften. So, you know, how do you feel about his evolution into Papa Hop? Yeah. I mean, I love the fact that they allow me to go to all these different places with the character because I find it so difficult to to not reinvent, just to continue to play the same notes. So I do like the fact that each year it's a different year and he's growing in a in a totally different way. And we're sort of peeling back layers of the onion. Like I think that the first season was very much about his purpose for living. 
and kind of his ideas of justice. Like when those crumbled away, he sort of had to find, he had to save a child that was a surrogate to his own in a way. And it allowed him to live and allowed him to function, allowed him to be a police officer, which is what he's always his sort of center note. And the second season sort of allowed him to be more of a father and to explore those issues. And then the third, through his relationship with fatherhood, kind of took him into who is he as a man at this point? And like, what is his relationship to, you know, a single mother and a woman that he has cared about for a long time? And also further into that thing of his intimacy issues with his daughter or people that he loves. I think we play with a lot of colors of him, which I really like. Like he physically in the first season, he was a lot harder. He was drinking, he was taking pills. He's like two and all pills, smoking a lot more, if you can believe it. And then season two, he started to soften, as you say, like he dances and he's eating a little more. And then season three, like he really is trying to figure out, he's kind of lost in a certain way. And he's, he is eating a lot more and he's like not drinking or popping pills as much. He's not as self-aware as, as I hope one day he could be. And he's making lots of mistakes. But his heart is much more exposed. Like you definitely see it on his sleeve a lot more. And it's a fun journey to take. And I think now going into the fourth season, there'll be a real shift to what he's going to become or what he has to become after his character's death. His resurrection needs to be something different. And that's a really interesting direction to go as we've taken him through this father route. What he's becoming is very interesting as well. Well, I'm very interested to know how much of you, David, identified with Hopper this season in terms of the kids growing up, being teenagers and sort of doing teenage things. I imagine that was a lot to take in on set at certain times. Yes, yes. I mean, I have a very, you know, I I play a very sort of avuncular role on the show. I mean, and I've known these kids since they were like, 10 years old. I mean, I guess 11, 10, 11. And I've watched them grow up. And, you know, one of the most moving things about the show to me is not even the stuff that we do, but you just watch, you just see these kids grow up. And it's just so moving to watch a child grow and to realize, you know, the things that he talks about in that letter, like the inevitability of change. There's something so beautiful about the inevitability of change because, you know, we all hate it to a certain degree. I mean, it's like, you know, it signifies aging and death and all these unknowables. But uh, it's terrifying and it's beautiful. And I think that's what Hop confronts, but it's also what I confront too, because it's right in front of my face. I mean, when these kids were 10 and 11, they were really just little idiots. I mean, so adorable, like so adorable. But now they're like real smart little human beings. And uh, some of them aren't so little. I think Caleb's like 18 or something. I think we're really lucky because I was worried starting out, the first season especially, that the perils of this industry, and especially this industry today with Instagram and all these things, that they some of them would fall into really weird places. I think we got really lucky where they're all still good kids, at least around me. <laughs> Maybe they scared me a little bit. So it's been scary to watch them grow up, but it's also been very gratifying to see that they've become good young men and women. Does Hopper remind you of any character you admired watching growing up? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was watching uh, some old Gene Hackman 
like Hoosiers, French Connection, things like that. These like gruff guys. And of course, there's Harrison Ford and like Nick Nolte, like those old Nick Nolte movies where they're these throwback guys who are real complicated, broken guys who have, you know, big hearts, but they've made mistakes, no doubt. And they require a certain stretch of your heart to, for empathy because they have made mistakes. And I think that, is really fun to play. When I was a young actor, I guess they said that you're broken down into two types when you're an actor as a man, a young man. They're like, you're either a Romeo or a Mercutio. And I just remember at like 19, I've always been a 40-year-old man. I always looked like a 40-year-old man. So there was something, but I was always a Mercutio. And I think that's the thing is, you know, uh, Hopper's Hopper is he's complicated and gruff like like these old throwback guys like Gene Hagman or Harrison Ford or Nick Nolte but also he reminds me a lot of my upbringing uh, my family's from Houston and I remember my grandmother and my uncle and a lot of my uncle's friends were these kind of good old boys from Houston who would say like boys don't cry you know and I like that man like I'm very different from that man now and I understand the problems and complexities of those people, but I have a real soft spot in my heart for those people, and I wanted to embody that with him. His edges are edgy. Well, I mean, Stranger Things is a show that a lot of people sort of count down the days for when the new season will premiere. And I'm curious, what was that show for you growing up? What was the show you could not wait to like get in front of the TV and watch or like did all your homework so you could get in front of that TV? I mean, that's a great question. I had so many shows when I was growing up. I remember the like after school lineup it was like Facts of Life. I think earlier than that, it was like Silver Spoons and uh, Different Strokes. And then there was like Facts of Life, Family Ties was another big one for me. There was also like Saturday morning stuff. I remember Land of the Lost was like my favorite show where they go down the river and they meet the dinosaurs and the slea stacks. And, all. and then the Dungeons and Dragons cartoon, that was a big one for me. But the big show that I would watch ever since I was, and I can't believe my parents let me do this, but ever since I was like seven or eight was Saturday Night Live. I was in love with that show and every single cast. And, you know, I'm 40, I, I was born, the show started in 75 and I was born in 75. So, you know, I started watching like very early in the cast and I saw all the iterations of the cast. So I would watch that show like religiously. Well, they say like an actor's only as good as their scene mates. And you had some good pairings this season. One was with Winona, whose character is Joyce. And the other was with that shirt. <laughs> Talk to me about sharing screen time with those two. <laughs> That's funny. Um, well, like Winona's just great. She's such a kind-hearted, curious creature. She helps me understand a lot of things I don't. I don't understand. She's always surprising. Sometimes confusing. Our relationship is just so personal, and I really do love her. So. I really feel like that she's a joy to work with. And I learned so much from her when I work with her. That shirt is amazing. I, that shirt, I had some say in, I will say. That was like really fun. And I'll tell you a quick story about it. So originally, Hopper had 
like back in the mall, back in the eighties, I don't know if you guys remember this, but back in the, when I was growing up in the eighties, Banana Republic was actually like a store with tusks outside of it and fake elephants and a Jeep and like palm trees. It was like a banana Republic and you'd go in and they would sell like safari jackets and like safari hats and stuff, but they were for kids to buy like photographer's jackets when they're in the jungle on loc- I mean, it was crazy stuff. And I bought some of that, which I never wore, by the way, because what kid, what seventh grade kid is going to wear? Like, I remember my mom going, if I buy this, you better wear it. And I was like, I'm going to wear it every day, mom. And I never wore it. Never. Because I was like, why am I going to wear this horrible thing? But we originally had Flo go out to Banana Republic and get him like a safari outfit because he thought it might be cool. But then we were like, we already did that kind of with like, you know, we've, he's always done the Indiana Jones thing. So we were like, let's do the Magnum PI thing a little more. So we gave him the mustache and we had him go out and like, you know, you have him falling asleep to these episodes of Magnum PI late at night. And I don't think he thinks he's going to dress like Magnum PI. I think he just, it's just working on his subconscious. You know, I dressed like Ricky Schroeder and Silver Spoons, but I didn't know I was doing it. I think Hopper's the same way where he's like, he's just like, no, it's cool. And so I remember thinking about this shirt and I didn't want it to be Hawaiian because that's very Tom Selleck, but we wanted it to be eighties and we got some like, you know, Patrick Nagel, I think his name is or whatever. He was like, made these prints in the eighties. The Duran Duran Rio cover is, is of, of them. And it's these women with like really pale angular faces and like a couple slashes of fluorescent light. And I mean, they're, they're hilarious. So we had some of those and we like had mock-ups of all these things. And then our brilliant costume designer came up with that and a blue shirt. And uh, I was like, it's got to be this one. And uh, I love that shirt. And I'm so happy it took off as a crazy Halloween costume. I'm just sad his final, and I'm putting quote marks, minutes were not in that shirt. He like got out of that shirt. (laughs) So that shirt, you know, he may have died, but that shirt didn't. So somewhere in the in the next seasons, who knows where that shirt will be? It could be the final villain. True, true. Well, how are you feeling about resuming production on season four? Like, how do you think all that has happened will change the acting world? I don't know. I don't want to scare anybody anymore. We're already scared. But like that Fauci guy did say at one point that he thinks handshakes might be done. And I was like, OK, uh, that means that whenever I watch movies about New York, I love to see whether they're pre-9-11 or post-9-11 because occasionally shots, you'll see the trade towers behind someone. You go like, oh, it was shot in the 90s or whatever. And then you see now modern music and the Freedom Tower and nothing's behind them. And and it's like a real marker now for films. And I just wonder if this will be a marker where we'll start to see somebody touch their face and you'll be like, oh, it's a period piece. <laughs> I mean, like, I don't want that to be the case. I And I sort of have some kind of feeling that will bounce back to some reasonable place. But I do know that, you know, now it's, I guess, scary when people, you know, I used to love touching my own face as an actor, but also touching another person's face. And it's such an intimate gesture. And now it actually sort of has all the more poignancy and intimacy. I mean, I was thinking the other day, I never thought I had to be grateful for being able to shake someone's hand. Like, that was never something where I was like, you know what, one day you're not going to be able to shake. I always thought that's a given. But now 
I'm going to be really grateful when I shake somebody's hand. I mean, it's going to feel like a profound, more of a profound event. So in a sense, the givens structures of acting will have to change to a certain degree, but the meaning behind them can actually get deeper to a certain extent. And I do know that if I touch someone's face in a scene, it's going to be all the more electric. And, you know, I hope we can all be safe about these things. But I do know that it can add a lot of potency and a lot of power. And also it can be, it could shut us down. But hopefully artists, I think, in general, embrace adversary and difficulties and things like that and try to transcend or at least have creative responses. to. And so I'm hoping that that will be the acting world's response to it. Well, outside of Stranger Things, were there any projects you were really excited about and now you're not so sure about those productions? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the biggest thing was I'm working on a play with a brilliant writer and we, uh, I mean, I don't know when they're going to do plays anymore. So I really hope that the theater gets back up on its feet and there's some way to have theaters, you know, live theater be open and have, because, you know, before... I was in movies and TV. I've always been a theater guy. And I sort of, my heart really bleeds for my fellow theater performers and writers and even people working the concessions. I mean, the Broadway Theater of New York has been devastated. You know, I would love to do plays again. On the other side, though, I also think that we we have to develop creativity in this quarantine. And we have to find ways of creating content that isn't, really crappily produced on our iPhones and stuff that's sort of done well, but that is a way that we can create something out of this. And I haven't really figured out a way, nor has I think anybody really figured out a way, but you know, there is an opportunity here that I think once we get past the shock and trauma, we will be able to embrace. You've talked about your reservations about the long wait between seasons before. So do you worry about what this unexpected and prolonged delay will mean for fans if they'll hang around and wait that long? I mean, what are your thoughts? I'm not worried about our fans because I think they're so like great and loving of the show and of us. I think they'll watch it. I just, I just feel an obligation. Like when somebody likes what you're doing, I feel an obligation to give them more of it. Like I want them to feel satisfied in that way. You know, it's kind of that thing where it's like, we're all in the same boat. And I think that if anything, this has taught us to maybe be a little grateful and sort of realize that things can slow down, paces can slow down, and we can still be okay and be grateful for what we have. I say that trying to assuage the rabid Stranger Things fan base because I don't, you know, we only shot a couple weeks and then we got shut down. You know, people love the show and I think they will continue to watch it but i'd like to get it to them as soon as possible it's sort of like that's why i rapidly facetime the duffers all the time is i try to figure out how are we going to get around this and, and you know my my armchair ideas about how we could combine things or do certain things certain ways or whatever you know and and how we could schedule things because i'm very invested in trying to put out as much content from this thing that i love as possible as well so I think everybody's working on it. And Netflix is, you know, one of the biggest corporations, most creative corporations in the world right now. They are on it and we're all trying to make it happen. I know you probably won't tell us in what capacity Hopper is back, but what tease about season four can you give us to hold us over? Uh, I think in a way we've always been responsive 
to the fan base and to what people see in the show. And I think we're being, we're continuing to be responsive in that way. And we're sort of uh, examining the characters more and more. The other thing is that I wanted to go into a lot more backstory about Hop and about, I kept pushing for this. I pushed for it in season two. I pushed for it in season three. We got a little bit. We got like some cardboard boxes, I think, in season two. And I know in this season, we're going to go into a lot more stuff that you don't know about. It won't come as a surprise because it it's sort of been laid in certain ways. But it, you really don't know about it or understand the depths of it. And that's really exciting to me. And they've, you know, been sort of putting me off for years. And then finally they gave me, started to give me these things. And I was like, whoa, yes, we're finally going to get into this stuff that we've been talking about since day one of the first season. And I was like, this stuff is just meaty, rich stuff that I've always known about him. And I've been dying to talk about and we haven't revealed it yet. So finally, once this season comes out, I can talk about it ad nauseum. But it's, uh, it's really exciting stuff for his character. Well, I can't wait for that. Our next episode in this podcast features an interview with MJ Rodriguez, who plays Blanca Rodriguez Evangelista in the television drama Pose. And we're asking all our guests to ask a question for our next guest to answer, and it could just be about anything. So is there anything you would like to ask, MJ? Ooh, wow. I don't know. Oh, you put me on the spot. I'm so bad at this. Oh, MJ. MJ, what I'd like to ask you. What's the greatest single performance you've ever seen? That's a good question. What's the single greatest performance you've ever seen? It was uh, Janet McTeer, who's an actress who's in about, she did a play called The Doll's House. When I was 20 years old, I saw it at a Broadway theater directed by Anthony Page. And it was the most brilliant performance I've ever seen a human being do. It blew me away. Well, that's a good note to end on. David, thanks so much. And I hope you and your family take care. You too. That's it for the very first episode of Can't Stop Watching. I'm your host, Yvonne Villarreal. Our producer is Paige Heimson, and our executive producer is Abby Fentress-Swanson. Our engineer is Mike Heflin, and a special shout out to Elena Howe for booking the guests for this podcast. Come back tomorrow. We're talking to actress MJ Rodriguez. Ooh, it's been so many television shows I've been watching. Um, I've definitely been catching up on Sailor Moon. <laughs> if you like Can't Stop Watching, subscribe and leave us a five-star review on Apple. Special thanks to Julia Turner, Matt Brennan, and Clint Schaff. We hope you're enjoying this podcast created by the journalists at the LA Times. Right now, access to facts has never been more important, and the Times is in the business of reporting them. Stay connected and subscribe because your subscription supports the production of podcasts like this one and our award-winning journalism. Visit latimes.com slash support LA Times to subscribe. Thanks for listening and see you tomorrow. Tomorrow.